Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Last Sisyphus, a podcast dedicated to fiction and philosophy. I'm your host, Colin Jones, and today I want to talk about Stephen Graham Jones's 2017 book, Mapping the Interior. Jones is a Blackfeet Native American who teaches at the University of Colorado Boulder in their MFA program. He has enjoyed a prolific writing career, publishing 22 books before the age of 50. And I can say without a doubt that his writing has not suffered because of it. I feel like so many writers out there who publish a lot of work in a short amount of time tend to see their work suffer to some degree, and their audience and their readership notices. But this is not the case with Jones. His writing has been characterized as experimental fiction at times, horror fiction at others, um, crime fiction, science fiction, and perhaps even speculative fiction. It kind of runs the gamut. He is known narratively for his dark playfulness and narrative inventiveness, something I'll get to shortly. He has been likened to David Foster Wallace and the New Sincerity Movement. Another name for this might be metamodernism, where irony and sincerity are blended together in order to push through the conventional postmodern tropes of pure cynicism nihilism and truth is farce, characteristics that have seeped into our cultural consciousness since the 80s, but something that has been addressed in narrative form since the 50s with John Hawkes and the 60s with Thomas Pynchon. Wallace once put it like this, quote, what passes for hip cynical transcendence of sentiment is really some kind of fear of being really human, since to be really human is probably to be unavoidably sentimental and naive and goo-prone and generally pathetic, close quote. Now, as far as mapping the interior and what it's about, it's about a lot of things, but I'll start here. It's about a 15-year-old boy named Junior who lives with his mother and younger brother Dino in a modular home. Junior and Dino's dad died a number of years ago, but Junior begins to see his father's ghost, or someone he believes to really be his father, and by extension, believes that Dino, an epileptic, is the mechanism by which his father penetrates the material world. Now, the trope or the convention of an epileptic character goes back to gothic tales, where they have always been seen as special, almost kind of like a seer or a spiritual being in stories. Now, in an effort to understand his home and the cause of his father's appearing, Junior decides to map out his home discovering elements of it that are at once frightening and enlightening. Now, this doesn't just include the main floor. A lot of the story takes place under the skirt of the house, where he crawls under it and what he finds there. I don't want to spoil any of that in case some of you are interested in reading the book. But in doing so, in mapping his house, he also begins to map out his own mind, his own interior, if you will. Now, William Faulkner summarized the dead well when he said, quote, the past isn't dead, it isn't even past, close quote. And this is one of the big questions presented in the book. Because while Junior and Dino's dad is dead physically, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's dead in any other way. Now, this presents questions about memory and truth and what those mean, and are they real, or how elusive really are they? And this is something that Junior attempts to to find. He, t- he attempts to find the answers to these. Now, the two ways that Junior attempts to communicate with his father or to come in contact with his father is twofold. 
The first is through sleepwalking. This is typically where he does sense or he sees his father is while he sleepwalks. But there's a second one when he is alive, and it's called dead footing, which is the belief or the idea of walking on your feet when they're asleep. And I'm sure everybody has experienced this before. When you stand up after you've been sitting for a long time and you've had your legs kind of bent in an awkward way, and you stand up and it feels like needles are jabbing into your feet and your legs. This is called dead footing. And there's an old Native American belief or superstition that to walk on, quote, dead feet is to allow yourself to be able to penetrate the spiritual world or the other side or a different reality. And Junior tests this out throughout the story where he ties rope around his legs in order to intentionally put them to sleep before untying them and then walking on them to try and commune with his father. Now, what's really complicated about the book in some ways is that he's not trying to get to his father merely for the fact of missing him, but it's to understand who his father was. And Junior, being 15 years old, has a lot of rage inside of him toward his father. And this plays very nicely with Junior's attempts to take charge as the man of the house. His father being gone, he's the oldest man in the house now. He takes the job very, very seriously. You know, he goes out of his way to protect Dino, who is someone who has a proclivity to be bullied at school and to be bullied on the school bus, and Junior is always having to look out for him. And Junior almost seems not necessarily stressed out by it, but a little bit apprehensive about it because he's always asking himself, where is the, the first father of this house? Where is my dad? Where is he? Why isn't he here? And that comes to a head at the end of the novel. Something, again, that I don't want to spoil in case any of you are interested in reading this book. But the two main questions presented in the book, at least for me, is the nature of truth and memory and how those are explored. So we'll take truth, for example. And it's one of those long-asked questions about, you know, is there a such thing as truth? And even if there is a such thing as truth, How do we know that we can attain it? Because we have nothing to really use as a barometer to understand whether something is true or not, you know, and there's an extreme example of this, of even if everybody agrees that X is true, we may still be living, hypothetically, in Descartes' version of a brain in a vat. We may be living a solipsistic existence. And if that's the case, then truth is completely out the window. Now, I'm not saying that I subscribe to that or that, you know, that idea that thought experiment should be taken at face value, but the question still remains, what is true? And how do we know what is true? And is there a difference between lowercase t truth and capital T truth? Those are huge questions. And these are questions that were asked by Wallace. These were questions that were and still are asked by Pynchon assuming he comes out with another book. And by extension, is there a difference between truth and fact? You know, in the the media today, there does seem to be a difference where things are fact-based, but does that mean they're necessarily true? And vice versa. It's very, very complicated. And these are the subjects that Jones is presenting in Mapping the Interior. Another complicated question is the idea of memory. Can memories be trusted? And if so, how do we know they can be trusted? How can we identify whether a memory is accurate? And 
if memories are not accurate, if we agree that memories are these very malleable things and that tend to grow and shrink as we get older, then how can we still use memories productively in spite of their deficiencies? This is a really tough question. I'm sure everybody listening can recall a childhood memory. And it may be true that you remember being at the mall in X city at this particular time. But what you were doing in that moment may be lost on you. And because you can't remember what specifically you were doing in the mall or what stores you went into, how do you know you were in the mall at all? This is very, very difficult unless you have somebody who was with you who can corroborate your memory. Now, the really cynical part about memory is that two people who had the same experience, say 10 years ago, are going to remember different facets of that memory. And sometimes the little tidbits of memory that they do have contradict one another. So not to really kick this horse too much longer, but I just wanted to draw out the point that memories are very elusive. They're, it's hard to really pin them down. And at least for me, uh, at least intellectually and rationally, it's hard to assess how productive uh, using a memory is. And this is perhaps something that is tackled with memoir writers. I'm sure this is something they grapple with all the time. Does the authentic memory matter as much as the way I remember it? Because those two things might be very, very different. Now, the third thing that the book is about is on lost potential. We are told that Junior and Dino's dad had the potential to be this incredibly talented dancer who goes to powwows and dances for money and could have made a living off of it potentially. But instead, he turned to alcohol that didn't land him anywhere. And by extension, you know, it, the, the book presents the idea of legacy. And just because, you know, your parents did this, does that mean that you also have to follow in their footsteps? And how hard it is to turn the boat around, so to speak, that if you have been living in an environment where you see people doing the same thing over and over and over again, it's very, very difficult for someone in the family to switch gears and go another way especially if they are not encouraged to do so by their family or their friends or their community. Now, all of this stuff seems very distant and intellectual and rational as far as asking questions about what truth is and what memories are and the idea of lost potential. But I think at the heart of the book, it's about love and one boy's attempt to get back to his father, a man he can hardly remember. In the way he is trying to recreate memories in order to cope with the sadness, loss, rage, and ultimately the heartbreak he has experienced. And this, again, plays out at the end of the book when Junior ends up having a child of his own. And it goes into a little bit about how Junior does things a little bit differently than his father did and how that affects his, uh, his child, who happens to be named Colin at the end. I don't want to go too much into that again, but it's very, very important. Um, and this is just like last week's book, The Stranger by Albert Camus. This is one of those where the end of the book really kind of hits home. And it's kind of odd because I don't read a lot of books where the end of the book is the punchline um, because I typically read weird stuff. I don't usually read um, things that have like kind of like a, you know, a formulaic 
um, kind of chronology to them. And I'm not saying that this book does. Again, it does not. But the end of the book still, that's where uh, the biggest punch can be found. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But Junior ends up having a child and he gets to make the choice. He has a decision to make. Am I going to follow in the same footsteps as my father did? Or am I going to, you know, turn this thing around and try and create a new future? And with that, you know, I would recommend this book to pretty much anyone. And I'll, and I'll say that pretty much every book that I review on here, every book that I read, I'm going to want to recommend to at least a small group of people. There's really not going to be any book where I would not recommend it to anybody. Um, but I will say that I would recommend this book, especially to those who are interested in the elusive nature of truth and memory and those who do not feel you know, insulted or frustrated by getting a little bit lost in the narrative because that's exactly what happens in this book. It's not like a Charles Dickens book where it starts from the beginning and it ends at the end and it's more or less streamlined all the way through. It's very complicated for how short the book is. Um, you get lost in what might be fantasy and memory and a dreamscape in the present, and it's hard to kind of put those pieces together to try and orient yourself, which I think is exactly what Jones was trying to do. That seems, again, to reflect this form and content and how those two play together. And I think the best books, um, to put it simply, uh, use this strategy of making the content reflect the form or, and vice versa. I think the best books are written in this manner, and this book is no different. I think this book is an excellent one. I think it's, I would recommend it for everybody, especially those who have lost someone very, very close to them, where you might be able to identify with not just the loss and the heartbreak, but also perhaps the rage of it, of feeling robbed of something. I know I have felt that before, and I think that this book is much like David Foster Wallace's book. It's trying to reach out and make a human connection. It's not trying to poke fun at the reader. It's not trying to insult you, but it's trying to guide you along and kind of allow you to see how the brain works on the page. And I think that's another facet of the book that I won't spend too much time on, but it's about how, you know, the book draws out how the mind works, this kind of stream of consciousness and associations and non sequiturs. That's exactly how the book is laid out. And it's following Junior's mind in the way he's thinking and why he's thinking that way. And we can kind of make sense of it, but we can't, we may not be able to answer every single question the book proposes. And I think, again, that if you can answer every single question the book is proposing, that it's probably not that good of a book. I think the best books leave questions to be answered, that there are no hardline conclusions to be drawn, which is a reason why I don't lean, you know, I don't put too much stock into literary critics or reviewers uh, for the most part, because at the end of the day, that is their opinion of this book. It's not conclusive. And so, you know, even the most professional critic of a book, their view is just as valid as yours is, just as valid as mine is. It's about what we get from books, not what the book objectively means. Again, personally, I love this book. I would recommend it to anybody who doesn't mind getting a little bit lost. It is a little bit frustrating at times. And the sentence structure is odd sometimes too. I had to read the sentences or a number of sentences over and over again to try and get kind of the rhythm. It's a little bit odd. It's told from a 15-year-old boy. So he's writing in ways that you wouldn't expect. It's not super clean, but you definitely can understand it. 
Um, and one upside to the book, even though it is elusive and it does kind of invite you into this world kind of of confusion and complexity, it's very, very short. It comes in at like 108 pages. It's very, very short. And anybody who sits down and has, you know, more or less a developed reading habit can get through this, reading five pages a day. That's not a huge ask, and the pages are short. It's a very, very short book, and it gets across a lot of things in such a short amount of time. And as always, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Last Sisyphus. And if you would like to have a longer discussion, you can email me at Colin, C-O-L-L-I-N, Jones15 at ProtonMail.com. Thanks, and I'll see you next time.